Now, when I think of fear, I don't know about you. So everyone should probably have those conversations at the dinner table. So what was the scariest thing in your life? For me, it's easy because when I was a sophomore in college, I had this moment of temporary insanity and I decided I wanted to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. And that's crazy. Don't do it, by the way. I did it five times. And this place I did it, the jump school I did it, is the only place in the world where your first jump is a free fall. There's no static line. There's no clipping up to some master jumper. You just go by yourself, count to 10, and pull your own ripcord. And I got to tell you, I still have nightmares about that. It is so scary as you're falling to the earth because you watch the movies and everybody falls and it's perfect, you know, nice, stable. When you're a rookie and you're new at it, you're flopping all over the place. One of my jumps, I literally did like a roll. And yeah, that's, that's scary. Absolute, total fear. But in the scriptures, when we see fear of the Lord, if we think that type of fear, we're probably going to get to the wrong conclusion of what fear is. Because fear in modern English is primarily an emotional word. In the scriptures, it's more than an emotional word. It's actually a phrase, fear of the Lord. It's a little bit like this phrase, rude awakening. Now, we could look at the word rude and look at the word awakening and literally look at it. And my daughter, Jamie's here. Actually, she can attest to this, but we don't know how this got started. But when they were teenagers, you know, teenagers sleep in. We had a rule on Saturday that you had to get up at the crack of noon. And if they didn't wake up by noon, I would go in and wake them up. And I don't know how this came about, but the way I woke them up is I would just hum the Star Spangled Banner. And I can't sing a note. I mean, me humming the scarf, that's fear, actually. That's scary because it's so bad. I'm so off key. And they would scream, no, daddy, stop. But they'd finally get up. But that's not what rude awakening means, right? If you look it up in the dictionary, rude awakening is an unexpected, sudden realization of something that's kind of bad. Maybe some of you this summer went on vacation to Canada, took your smartphone with you and your iPad, and you forgot to call the cell phone company and tell them you're going to Canada and you're checking emails and doing Instagrams and making calls. And then you get your phone bill when you get back. You have a rude awakening because it's hundreds and hundreds of dollars that you didn't expect. So the, a rude awakening is actually different than what the actual words literally mean. And fear of the w- Lord is a little bit like that. So how are we going to figure out what it does mean? I'll tell you right off the top, fear of the Lord doesn't mean you should be scared of Jesus. We know that that's not right because Jesus is the good shepherd. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. And he's the good shepherd. But it still says fear of the Lord. So there is a fear aspect to it. So what we're going to do tonight is look at a bunch of different places in the scriptures that talk about fear of the Lord and figure out what it means together. We're going to start in the Torah, the Old Testament, five first books, the Pentateuch, the Torah. This is God's instruction book to his people, the Israelites. And let's see what it actually says. If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. That's quite a list. If you look at it just a little closely, in one breath, we're told five things. Fear the Lord, be obedient, love God, serve God, and observe his commandments. But notice the first thing on the list, which is usually important, especially in Hebrew. The first thing is fear the Lord. See, this is the short answer to the question, what does it mean to live in the fear of the Lord? How do we live in the fear of the Lord, the fear of God? 
And we see by looking at this list that it's way more than an emotion. It's more than the fear of falling to the earth while you're skydiving. It's way more than that. It's more than emotion. It's actually a relationship between the one true God and his people at this time, the Israelites. And a key characteristic is obedience. I'm going to say that again. When we think about living in the fear of God or living in the fear of the Lord, it's more than an emotion. It's a relationship between the one true God and his people. And a main characteristic is obedience. So that's a good start with what does this thing mean by fear? What do we mean by fear of the Lord? How do we live in the fear of the Lord? Next, we take a quick look at the book of Job. And if you remember, Job is the guy that God allowed Satan to test. You know, he's the guy you never want to be, right? Because who wants uh, God to say, here, have Steve, Satan, test him, test away. You know, I don't really think I'm up for that, but Job was up for that. And if we look at chapter 28 of Job, in the middle of the passage, God is speaking here and it says, and he said, this is God. So God said to the human race, the entire human race, all of us, believers and unbelievers, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. So here we get a hint that the fear of the Lord has a moral aspect. And in addition to the things we already said, there's also a moral aspect because the fear of the Lord is, is wisdom and it's to shun evil. It's to like do away with evil. I, want, I don't want anything to do with evil. Evil's immoral. And I want to be a moral, good, God-fearing person. So there is a moral aspect to this. Now, when we dig deeper into the scriptures, we find out that the fear of the Lord is wisdom and Unlike the, the, the modern English wisdom in the, in the scriptures, wisdom always carries a tone of righteousness. And if you're wise, you're righteous. And if you're righteous, you're wise. That goes on throughout all of the scriptures. So it's a little bit different. So that's Deuteronomy, that's Job. How about the book of Ecclesiastes, which is just an unusual, unique book in the Bible, I think. You know, it's 12 chapters long and you read through it and all sorts of stuff's going on. But the conclusion in the last chapter is super, super clear. Frankly, when I read it, I'll usually read one, two, three chapters and then I'll go read the last chapter and then I'll go back and read four, five, six. I want to keep going to the last chapter because this passage out of Ecclesiastes is actually super clear to me. And here's the conclusion of, of the whole book. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. So it's just plain English. Here's what's going on. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind, the whole human race. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So again, like in Deuteronomy at the beginning, of this, there's this connection between fear and obedience, which is always going to be a key part of living in the fear of the Lord. But also notice towards the end of this conclusion that the topic of judgment comes up. And the Bible teaches here and other places that all deeds will get judged. Good deeds will get judged. Bad deeds will get judged. Believers will get judged. Unbelievers will get judged. Satan will get judged. Paul in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, you don't have to look, go there and it's not going to be on the screen, but this is the way Paul puts it. For we must all, all, be, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due uh, for the things done while in the body. So here on planet Earth, whether good or bad, we're all going to be judged for our good deeds 
and our bad deeds. Now, that's not a popular thing to say, right? I mean, how many of you heard in the last week or so, don't judge me on a multitude of topics? That's the culture we live in. People don't like to be judged. They don't like to talk about judgment. But the reality of life for the human race, all deeds will be judged. Very, very clear teaching in the Bible. But here's the good news for Christians, for believers. When we are judged, our bad deeds will be declared guilty, will be found guilty. But for those who are in Christ, no condemnation. Two weeks ago, I think it was, Jim Williams gave a teaching out of 1 John, explained this incredibly well. If you have any questions about it, go back and listen to that teaching again. But the reality is our deeds, good and bad, are going to be we're going to be held accountable for them. They're going to be uh, judged. We're going to stand before Christ to explain our good and bad deeds. But again, if you're in Christ, if you follow Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, there's no condemnation, but there is consequences. The good news is that there's also, also there's good, there's uh, consequences for our good deeds. When we do good things, the Bible usually calls those rewards. One of my favorite passages in in the Bible is the very, very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. Jesus is speaking, and this is what he says. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person a person according to what they have done. So when you do good things, Jesus has a reward for you. This is awesome. I mean, it's wonderful news that my bad deeds Uh, I'm not condemned for it because Jesus takes the penalty for that. But there's more good news. He also rewards us for our good things. So one of the questions I have for you tonight is, have you bought into the lie that your life doesn't matter after you're saved? Some believers and Christians live their life that way. They might not think that way, but what, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if I work at Intel or Nike or from a barista? What difference does it make if I work hard all the time? It makes a huge difference. Because Jesus wants us to live as his ambassadors, as his disciples. So how we live is very, very important. Now, it doesn't really matter, I don't think, exactly where you work. It's how you live your life wherever you work, if you follow me. So if you're a good Christian person at Intel or Nike or Barista, that's what's important. The fact that you make chips or make shoes, whatever. But the important thing is, do you love God and love your neighbor while you're doing whatever path you've chosen? See, part of fearing the Lord is understanding that God, Jesus, has the power to judge and he will judge. But the other thing that's important to remember is when the world judges and when people are saying, don't judge me, the world's standards of judge, we're getting judged by things like status and who has the most power, who has the most money, who has the most fame. Or one that really irritates me is, Who has the most beauty? I mean, it's crazy. All of us are created in the image of God. God's creatures are beautiful. How dare we judge people based on beauty? But that's the culture we lived in. When Jesus judges, it's not about fame, money, status, beauty. It's about your heart. That's what Jesus judges. How is your heart? Does your heart love God? Does your heart love your neighbor? That's what Jesus' judgment is all about about. So this concept of fearing the Lord and the fact that God is a judge and Jesus is a judge and 
He's a good judge and he's fair and there's no condemnation of Christ. Part of this is illustrated in the uh, C.S. Lewis story, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, How many people have read the book or seen the movie out of curiosity? Quite a few. It's a pretty popular series. And if you remember, in that story, the children enter the fantasy land of Narnia through the wardrobe. The lion is... Represent, uh, represents Jesus, the lion Aslan. And the children, as they go into this fan- fantasy land, they ask the beaver, who's their guide, about the lion. And the children ask of Aslan, Jesus, the lion, is he safe? Is he safe? And the beaver answers, of course not, but he's good. Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. And that's the thing that we sometimes do. We have an incomplete picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for our sins. And he is the good shepherd. And he's compassionate. And all those wonderful things. But he's also the Lion of Judah. When he comes back, he's coming back to judge everything and everybody. And he is the warrior that he comes back as this picture in, in scriptures. And we have to understand that Jesus is both. He is the lion and he's the lamb. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord and Lord. We need to have a very, very complete picture of who Jesus is. Okay, let's move on and look at just a few Psalms. Because one of the things I want you to understand is this idea of living in the fear of the Lord is very, very, very broad. It's not this real narrow concept. Sometimes when I ask people, what do you think it is? I'll give me one word. And you know, that's all it is. It's actually very, very, very broad. Look at some of the, the verses out of Psalms. Uh, first one is 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. Reverence is part of fearing the Lord. Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So Jesus, the good shepherd, the good lion, actually protects his kids and delivers them. Psalm 30, I'm sorry, Psalm 40, verse 3, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. This is part of the answer to the question is, how do I love God and fear God at the same time? Because if I love somebody, I want to be around them. And if I fear somebody, I don't want to be around them. The answer is trust. So when you love God... And fear God the way you want to be around God, even though you have a fear of God, a healthy, proper fear of the Lord, is because you trust him because he's good. The next Psalm 103, verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. We said this is a relationship and relationships are two ways. It's between us and God and God and us. And when we fear him, he loves us. And another Psalm, Psalm 11, uh, 111 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Bunch more on that when we get to Proverbs. Uh, all who follow his precepts have good understanding. So from the Psalms, we get, in addition to all the other stuff, that the fear of the Lord is um, under, understanding all these different aspects and figuring out what that is, is a challenge a little bit to us. But it's no wonder that the early church lived in the fear of the Lord. This is a rich, wonderful, deep thing. And we need to bring that phrase back, but we need to do it in a proper way. We need to understand exactly what it is. Okay, all that was background. Now we're going to go to Proverbs. So Proverbs chapter 1, and we're going to just spend a couple minutes in chapter 1, and then we'll we'll dig into chapter 2. But Proverbs chapter 1 starts out in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Verse 2. 
for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight. This is the purpose of the book of Proverbs. The purpose of the book of Proverbs is that we gain wisdom and instruction and understanding words uh, of insight. But the theme of Proverbs, we've got to jump down to verse 7. If you jump down to verse 7, we pick up the theme of Proverbs. And that is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, a lot of people make a fairly big deal out about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, and they are different. But for the sake of tonight, I want you to notice that verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Don't turn there, but uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So for tonight's context, we're going to say wisdom and knowledge are pretty, pretty close. They're pretty much the same. But don't miss this. This is the important part. Whether it's wisdom or knowledge, which the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, when we think of wisdom and knowledge in our modern day English, what do you think of? You generally think of somebody with a high IQ, somebody super smart, maybe super educated, Maybe a picture of Einstein comes to mind, right? He's super knowledgeable. He's super wise. That's not actually totally accurate when we think of wisdom and knowledge in the scripture. This is the point I I want you to to get. That wisdom and knowledge in the scripture, it has a relational aspect. It has a relational aspect. It's not just knowing about something. It's actually knowing about someone and relating to them. So there's a couple different ways I can explain this to you. A um, couple different analogies. My brother and I have started doing some mountain biking in uh, central Oregon. And it's some of us, the trails are on a pretty hard course. So we're running these higher end mountain bikes. So you can go read up about the bike and figure out what size wheels and what kind of gearing and what kind of suspension. And you learn a little bit about them. But until you actually get on the bike and ride down the trail and see how the thing rides, you really don't know it. You're not very wise about how that bike rides. You don't have a very good knowledge of it until you actually get on it and experience it and have uh, some real life with the bike. Probably a better analogy is marriage. My wife Vicky's down here. We've been married for 32 years. And guess what? Before I asked her to marry marry me, I knew a little bit about her, right? I didn't randomly pick her out of the crowd, right? I knew a little bit about her. And I said, oh, this is the one I want to spend the rest of my life with. But do you think 32 years later, after experiencing all the ups and downs of marriage and life and kids and moving and all that, am I more knowledgeable of her? You bet I am. Am I a little bit wiser? Well, that's debatable maybe, but, but, uh, but I am. I know Vicki better. I have a better relational knowledge of her. And that's what the Bible speaks of when it talks about wisdom and knowledge. Let's look at how James, in the book of James, defines wisdom. And that's up on the screen, James 3, verse 7. It starts out, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, so this is the wisdom from God, from heaven, is first of all pure. First of all, God's wisdom is untainted, no hidden agendas, it is sacred, it's morally pure. Then it's a bunch of other things that James says, and notice all the relational words that are in James' definition of godly wisdom. It's peace-loving. That's a relation. Considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. See, God's wisdom, the wisdom from above, is a very, very relational, moral thing. It's not just about being smart. 
Now, if you go back to chapter one of Proverbs and look at verse seven, the second part of that says, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And just like when we think wisdom, we tend to think smart guys. When we think fools, we tend to think that these are not so smart people. But it's actually more than that in the scriptures. If you have a 2011 or a version of the NIV in your hand, look at the footnote down at the bottom of your Bible. Because I have a little C by fools. And I'm going to read this to you in case you don't have it. But in my, script, in my Bible, it says, The Hebrew word rendered fool in Proverbs and often elsewhere in the Old Testament denote a person who is morally deficient. Morally deficient. So a fool in the Bible is not just someone who doesn't have a lot of smarts. A fool is morally deficient. And a wise person is morally good, is righteous. So besides this section of Proverbs that talks about the uh, living in the fear of the Lord, there's a bunch of other problems, Proverbs, that talk about living in the fear of the Lord. But to put just some of them up on the screen There's way more than this. This is just a sample, and you can go read more and more about this. But here's a sample of what else the fear of the Lord is. It's a fountain of life. It's better than wealth. It avoids evil, just like in Job 28, um, where a a wise person shuns evil, and a person who fears God shuns evil, avoids evil. It leads to contentment. That's a good thing. It brings humility. That's a really good thing. It stops envy. We all want all of these things. This is a wonderful, deep treasure that we have in the Bible. How to live in uh, the the concept of fearing the Lord. Now, if you're sitting here and you're going, wow, I had no idea. There's so much here. How am I going to remember half of this? I searched for a quote that might stick in your mind. And it's from Charles Bridges. And it says that the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Let's read that again. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Now, I'm not really good about memorizing quotes. What little memory I have, I try to memorize scriptures with. So I whittled this definition down to four words. And this is kind of my personal summary, but here's the key. I don't think you could whittle it down to less than four words. And this is one of the things I think we need to do as a church is remember that this is a big concept. It's not just one thing. It's multiple things. But I think if you get down to these four words, um, you'll be pretty close. So here's my summary of how to live in the fear of the Lord. It's the affectionate, reverent, submissive obedience. Affectionate, reverent, submissive obedience. Now, hopefully by now I've convinced you that this is a good thing, right? We want to live in the fear of the Lord, but how do we do it? How do we do that? How do we actually pull that off? Well, chapter two of Proverbs actually tells us, and we're going to go through those first six verses and look at that briefly. Proverbs two, uh, verse one starts out with my son, if my son, if the picture here is the perfect earthly father talking to his son who's growing and still at home. Now, I know for some of you, you didn't have a very good earthly father. And that's a challenge. So this, this, this metaphor here in the Proverbs may or may not help you very much. But for now, visualize what a perfect earthly father would be. 
or for the gals picture the perfect earthly mother or even better, the perfect parents and the perfect kids, that relationship. Because in a good household, when the kids are little, mom and dad are king and queen, right? They set the rules for the benefit of the kids. And the kids actually live a little bit in the fear of mom and dad because mom and dad have a power and authority and they set the law. But mom and dad, if they're good, they love the kids and the kids love mom and dad and they fear mom and dad and they trust mom and dad and all these other things that encompass the fear of the Lord. But what happens here in this passage, which I think is really cool, is it's an if statement. My son, if, and the first four verses are four ifs, and then it lands in verse five on the then. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. That's what we want to do tonight. We want to understand the fear of the Lord. So let's see what Proverbs tells us. Verse one, my son, if you accept my words and store my commands within you, this is the first condition accept my words and store up my commands within you. And what, what I think that is, is actually internalizing the scriptures. You have to accept them. You have to hear them. You have to understand them, but then you also have to store them up within you and make them part of who you are. The best illustration I can give you of this is a, a person uh, I had the privilege of spending some time hiking with who uh, unfortunately was a POW in the Vietnam war and spent two years in the Hanoi Hilton brutally beaten, savagely beaten. The guy couldn't walk right still, but he made it through and he wouldn't talk about the experience at all, which most of those guys don't. But I, I knew he was a Christian. I asked him, how is it that you lived in that place, that horrific place for two years? How did you survive as a Christian? And he said, the scriptures became my soul. My soul became the scriptures. The scriptures became who I was because they were beaten his body to the inch of his life. So he realized that who he is, is the scriptures. And the scriptures were very, very much internalized in this man. Verse two, the next thing we do, if turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Now, I know you guys don't do this. But I occasionally do this when I'm listening to God. I cover my ears and go la, 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 right? Like the two-year-old. Because I just do that sometimes because I'm foolish and I don't listen to God. And what the Proverbs is here is telling you, take your hands off your ears and listen. We all need to do that. And then secondly, apply your heart to understanding. So you not only have to listen, but it can't be in one ear and out the other. You want to actually listen and apply it to your heart. And then verse three says, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding. One of the things that I found as being a parent is I love it when my kids ask me things. I mean, I just do. One of the things that's hard as a parent is sometimes you want to tell your kids everything. Like this is what you do, do this, do this, do this. And then they just don't listen to you. But if sometimes as a parent you wait and then the kids ask and then you give them the answer and they're listening because they asked. That's our relationship with, with our Lord. And he's waiting for us to ask, but we have to cry out to him. And that's called prayer. I'm really excited that in a couple of weeks, Jose is going to do a three-week series on prayer. It's going to be very, very practical down to earth. And we're all going to learn how to be uh, better at talking to God in prayer. Verse four, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. This is the last condition, the last if 
before we find out how to live in the fear of the Lord. And what it basically is, is a treasure hunt. This takes a little bit of time and energy, right? And treasure hunts are interesting because if I, if I told you there's a million dollars of silver buried in Eastern Oregon, none of you would leave the room and start looking for it. But if I had a very detailed map and told you exactly where it was, many of you would be out there tomorrow looking for it, right? Because I got a map, I can go find it, voila, treasure. That's what's going here, on here in the scriptures. God is giving us a treasure map. And the treasure is living in the fear of the Lord, which comes up in the very next verse, verse five. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And again, the knowledge of God is the relationship knowledge of God, not just things about him, but actually who he is and how we relate to him better. So if we want to summarize this if-then statement in Proverbs, up on the screen, there's going to be just a couple steps here. And what they are is we internalize the scriptures. We listen to God's wisdom. We pray. We stay persistent on that treasure hunt. It's a little effort. takes a little bit of work. But the prize is fabulous. Then we'll understand the fear of the Lord. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, good thing. Now, to some of you here tonight are saying, that sounds a little hard, and I, I, I don't like doing hard things. So you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And go pursue it. And I think the answer is yes. But I also want to encourage you by just looking at one more verse, verse 6, and then I would really hope that you would read the rest of the verses of chapter 2. But verse 6 gives us a little bit of encouragement about how this is going to go down. Verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. See, I, I think the way the Lord's postured here is he wants to bless us. He wants to bless us. He wants to bless the sunset quarter. He wants this church to go out and do mighty, wonderful things for him, to be his ambassadors, to tell people about Jesus, to make disciples. But there's a process here and we have to do some work first. And that's what's going on. But the Lord gives wisdom Look at the way James put it. If we go back to James, this will be on the screen as well. James 1 verse 5. This is James speaking. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. I love the fact that you just have to ask God and he gives. And I have a personal struggle with guilt sometimes. And I love the fact that this says, who gives generous to all without finding fault. Because Satan often lies to me and says, you know, you can ask God now, but he's not going to answer. You should have asked sooner. You should have asked a couple of weeks ago. You procrastinated. You fool. Don't do, you know, but that's a lie of Satan. God doesn't find fault like that. Satan sometimes says, you don't deserve God's wisdom. You don't deserve it. Look at all the things you've done. You don't deserve God's wisdom or you're unworthy of God's wisdom. But that's not what God says. God doesn't say you're too late. God doesn't say you're unworthy. God doesn't say you don't deserve it. God says, here, I give it to you. Just ask. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift from the Lord. Now, the last thing I want to do just tonight briefly is just kind of summarize all this because I know for some of you, you've never even heard of this because you're not very familiar with the Bible. Trust me, if you read through your Bible, this phrase, fear of God, fear of the Lord, living in the fear of the Lord, is all over the Bible. 
And it's a concept that's not talked about very much in the Western church today, and I frankly don't really know why. But you can see just from this brief overview that it's pretty cool. It's pretty, it's pretty radical. And the concept of living in an affectionate reverence, submitting in an obedient way to Jesus, that's the way I want to live. That's the way I want our church to live. So that's what it is. And how, to, how do we get it, as we summarize on the screen, by, internal, by internalizing the scriptures and listening to God's wisdom, praying, being persistent? Yeah, that takes a little bit of work. But God's in it with us, and he wants to give us this wisdom. So what we're going to do now, I'm going to ask you just to close up your Bibles. You don't need them. The worship band's going to make their way up here. And I'm just going to ask you three things for you to start reflecting upon as we worship tonight and finish up tonight as we go to the communion uh, tables. And the first question is, how are you doing in living in the fear of the Lord? How are we doing as a church living in the fear of the Lord? Is our relationship with the one true God characterized by an affectionate reverence, submitting to him in obedience? Is that what others would say about us? Or do we need to work on one or all of those areas? How are we doing on that? If you could say yes, I'd say just keep it up. Be persistent. Keep doing it week after week. If you could say, oh, I need some work there, uh, ask the Holy Spirit to tell us as we worship tonight what it is. Secondly, what foolish things need to be replaced by godly wisdom? What foolish things? What things are you morally deficient at need to be replaced by God's pure wisdom. I was convicted this week because when I asked myself that question, it was right after a big fight I had with Vicky on Friday. And I realized that I was foolish. I was morally deficient. We had a fight. The topic is, it was a non-event, like most fights are, right? Um, it, what we were fighting over was dumb, but... My sin nature came out, and she would tell you her sin nature came out, but you could talk to her about what happened with, with her. But for me, I realized that I was being foolish. My spirit wasn't gentle. It was harsh. I wasn't slow to anger. I was quick to anger. I was morally deficient. I was a fool. And I need to replace on a daily, weekly basis that foolishness with wisdom, which is righteousness. And I do that by living in the fear of the Lord. And the last question for you tonight is, how are you doing with your relationship with the Lord? How is your relationship with Jesus? Because you know, the, the gospel is wonderful good news, as we've, we talk about here all the time. But one of the simplest, simplest ways to, re, to, to summarize the gospel in three words is this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is coming back again to restore and make all things new. Jesus is Lord. 